Welcome to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. This is your host, David Kaplan. In this episode, I interview Brian Eskelson. He's the assistant men's basketball coach at Harvard. Coach, how's it going? Good. Uh, everything's going well up here in Boston, and it's uh, it's great to be still employed, even though we're not uh, playing basketball in the Ivy League, but uh, can't, can't complain. Everything's good. Good stuff. Coach, you want to give yourself a, a brief introduction to the list? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Brian Eskelson. I'm an assistant men's basketball coach at Harvard University. This is my seventh year here. Uh, and, you know, working backwards, I also spent a year as an assistant at Rice in Houston. I spent three years at Stanford as a video coordinator. And my first year out of college, I was the Dobo at New Orleans. So I've certainly made my way around the country. Coach, you grew up in Fairfax, Virginia. You attended W.T. Woods, like myself, and obviously Tommy Amaker. Talk about your high school basketball experience. Uh, yeah, it was certainly an interesting experience. One of the things that uh, I, I often uh, tell people is, you know, my high school team, my, when I was a senior, uh, we went 27-1 and, and and were one of the best teams in the area. And then the next thing I say is, oh, but I, I wasn't on the team. I was just in the stands. Uh, you know, all of my better friends were, were the starters and better players on the team, but uh, I, I certainly wasn't uh, at that level for where the program at Woodson was uh, at the time. And certainly, you, you know, uh, Woodson's one of the better programs in the Northern Virginia area. But I, I was a, a decent high school player. I was a starter on the JV team, uh, didn't make the team as a, as a junior. Um, and then I didn't even go out for the tryouts uh, as a senior. And one of the, the things that I did during my high school career was actually uh, probably why I'm, I am where I am right now is I, I would always go to see other really good high school games in the area. And for anybody who's been uh, in the DMV area, you can really find a, a great high school basketball game pretty much every night. So if it wasn't watching Woodson, you know, I was watching uh, Paul the Six or you know, Marcus Ginyard over at O'Connell or Eric Hayes at Potomac and, uh, I don't know, Dante Cunningham and all the other really good players in the, in the DMV area. And that's, that's something that uh, really got me into high school recruiting and, and high school basketball. And I would say that's really helped me throughout my, my career is, is having an interest in, and a love for for high school basketball. So uh, my, my high school experience was, you know, very different than your average, uh, certainly division one coach. Um, but uh, it, I think it gave me a, a little bit of a different perspective of somebody who um, had, had, you know, obviously was a player to some degree, um, but also had the experience of seeing some other high schools at, a, at an early level. You know, we didn't really have the whole AAU scene in Fairfax as far as, you know, the shoe sponsor. Yeah, you have Team Takeover and a few others. But what was your experience with county select basketball? And did you ever consider reclassifying at a private school, uh, you know, to try to make a varsity team? Because you were one of the younger kids in your grade. From what Yeah, I yeah. And I actually, it's, it's funny, um, you know, there's <laughs> everybody's experience in high school basketball is different. Uh, I actually played AAU and made some AAU teams that uh, cut some of our varsity starters. So it was just kind of a weird experience. Uh, back then it was, uh, it was James Lee and Nova United and 
uh, some teams that are Fairfax stars, some teams that are still around. Um, but, you know, uh, grassroots basketball at that level is, is sometimes a little different than high school basketball and what the high school coaches are, are looking for. Um, and so it was, it was actually a great opportunity for me to play over the summer and um, play with and against some, some really good players. And uh, I, I always loved uh, playing, you know, those, those summer leagues uh, for, for club and for, for high school because, as I mentioned earlier, the DC area is just such a, a great league. You know, I, you, one day you're playing, you're playing Herndon and Scotty Reynolds. And uh, the next day you're, you know, you're playing uh, DeMatha and, and they're always loaded. So uh, it's just such a great area to, to play against uh, really talented high school basketball players. You know, you chose to attend the university of Tennessee, unlike everybody else <laughs> in our school that went to UGA, Virginia Tech, Nova, George Mason, you know, what made you want to be a ball? It's a, it's a great question, and, and I don't really have a, a perfect answer. When, when I went to Tennessee, there wasn't a single other person from my high school there. So I was definitely a fish out of water. Um, but if you, you kind of rewind, uh, one of the things that I did with my dad actually uh, was, was really instrumental in, in, in both Tennessee but also my basketball life he would take me to some of the better high school games, even when I was not even in high school, when I was in elementary school and middle school, he took me to a West Springfield high school women's game. And I watched Carol Lawson as a player there. And Carol Lawson's gone on to be a, an amazing WNBA player and was an assistant with the Celtics last year. Now she's the head coach at, at Duke on the women's side. But I remember seeing her in high school uh, and she obviously went on to be a star at the university of Tennessee for coach summit. And that was kind of my first uh, experience with, with Tennessee and having them on my radar. And as I was looking at, at colleges, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't a Division I player. I wanted to have that Division I experience, though. I wanted to go to a school that had a, had a great sports program and, you know, had big football games on, on the weekend and that kind of thing. Uh, so, actually, I, I went to, to visit a couple schools and, when I went to Tennessee, it just so happened to be uh, when they beat Florida and whatever it was, 2004, and uh, kicked a, a game-winning field goal at the end. And it was kind of an, an unbelievable scene. And for anybody who's been on that type of you know, SEC campus, just the energy is, is amazing. And I uh, fell in love with it when I visited. And so I kind of just went on, on a whim. Uh, I knew I you know, I liked the school and, and I figured that I would uh, make my friends in the, in the sports world in, in that area. And uh, I was lucky enough that, you know, as you're playing intramurals early on as a freshman, uh, one of the things that the women's coaching staff did was, uh, was actually watch some of the intramural uh, contests. They, they're looking for guys just like, you know, you and me who are, you know, good basketball players, but, you know, not guys who are, 610 or you know hanging on the rims they they want uh you know maybe a more realistic look for what uh their women's teams are going to be playing so that that gave me an opportunity to be a, a practice player for coach summit which uh, i did for several years and uh was an, an amazing amazing experience coach i gotta correct you uh I'm a lousy basketball player i have been since the age of 14 you're still a bucket uh <laughs> So I don't know if you, if you meant you and me both, but uh, no, you definitely 
I could see, uh, <laughs> you know, competing with the ladies. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun experience. But uh, for for your listeners, you know, you they should know that that you and I were actually, uh, uh, you know, turnpike basketball teammates. I, I think we 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 won a couple of championships. So back in the day, we we had a little bit of a chemistry on the court. So uh, you know, you don't don't sell yourself short. Hey, I, I was an enforcer before uh, Mark Morris <laughs> and those guys. Uh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> but. Uh, no, in all seriousness, um, I, I was I was kind of exactly what the the Lady Vols basketball team needed. I, I'm six three and uh, you know can can kind of guard a couple different positions for the women's basketball game, and um, you know was was just athletic enough and just good enough to be able to to push some of their players and and really help them out. But uh, more than anything, I I just loved basketball. I wanted to be around it. Uh, I actually thought about being a manager for, for the men's team. Uh, and at the time it was actually Bruce Pearl's first year. The, the Tennessee program wasn't certainly where it is right now. And you're looking at an opportunity to do that or be a practice player, continue to actually play on the court. Uh, and at the time, you know, Tennessee had Candace Parker and they were one of the best teams in the country and coach, Pe- uh, coach Pat Summit's a legend. So to me, the choice was really obvious, uh, and that's why I went and I did that. And it was, it was a great experience. We we you know won two national championships. I say we. I, I didn't do anything. I just showed up to practice. Um, but you know it was it was a lot of fun, and really you know informed me in a lot of ways on how uh, I should be looking at, at how to run a program and and how to run a practice. And and honestly, I wish I had taken more notes, um, but. Uh, uh, it, it was a hell of an experience for me. You know, you talk about uh, being a you know, practice player, scout team member for uh, Pat Summit. What was it like to work for such a legendary coach in person? And, and for, you know, being a scout team player, how much of the other team's offense and defense did you have to learn? Every yeah, week? a couple of good questions there. And I, I would start out with Coach well, Summit. She's the ultimate been- competitor. And that was kind of her reputation as just being this fierce, uh, relentless uh, person and, and, and coach. And, and she was absolutely that. And, you know, there's this, these cliches of a coach, you know, being really detail oriented and, and starting drills over just to make sure everything is perfect. Like, uh, like a three man weave drill, doing it over and over again until it's absolutely perfect. Well, she actually was like that every day and, you know, wasn't just a cliche with her. She did not cut corners at all. That was the thing that I really took from her more than anything was just, you know, not, not, you know, willing to sacrifice uh, any sort of effort, not willing to uh, bend or or give in to anything, but, uh, but, you know, the the girls team giving their best. And uh, you mentioned the scout team and learning the other team's plays, uh, the best story I can, I can think about with that is, is we absolutely would run the other team's opposing offenses. Uh, you know, you'd get with the assistant coach who has the scouting report for that team, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes before practice. And you'd, you'd run through the plays. And then at some point during the practice, you'd, you'd go against the, the women's team. And uh, one of the things I, I always thought was unique when I was there, I don't think I ever saw the women play five on five against each other. It was always five on five against the scout team. And I think coach summit really wanted the, the women's team to, uh, 
you know, get that chemistry with each other as opposed to splitting the, the, the team up. And if you have a good enough practice squad to do that, then certainly uh, it's to your advantage to, to do so. Uh, but during my, my senior year, I think it was the scout teams running through some sets. I think it might've been Kentucky if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, and one of the guys on the scout team uh, kept breaking off one of the plays. And, you know, you've been around coaching, you've been on teams where there's always that one guy on the scout team who keeps on, you know, breaking off a play or trying to do something extra. And it's, it's funny because, you know, they're probably on the scout team for a reason. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, they keep on, you know, trying to score or, or trying to do too much. And, you know, that, that player on this particular day may or may not have been me. I, I kind of plead the fifth on that. Uh, but, you know, we were running kind of like a, a ball screen continuity and we kept rejecting the ball screen and, and driving baseline because some of the, the, the girls were, were cheating the screen. And so Coach Summit, uh, she stops and she actually just kind of gives that famous glare or, or stare that she had at the scout team, kind of like, you know, she didn't even need to, to use any words and you still felt like shriveling up and in, in, in a corner <laughs> and crying. Uh, but, you know, we got the picture. She wanted us to, to run this, the scout play as it, as it needed to be run. Uh, so the next time uh, we, we run the play the appropriate way, the girls get to stop. And, you know, the, the team thinks that we're moving on to the next play or the, the next drill. And she stops and she kind of yells at them. You know, it's embarrassing that I have to get on the scout team because you guys can't force the ball into the screen. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of uh, mentality that she had that, you know, she, she was always pushing uh, the girls to be uh, to be perfect, to, you know, to not give in, to not, um, you know, cheat with anything, to, to go through things at full speed. And I'll never forget this, like the very next uh, play that we ran, she kind of walked behind the scout team and kind of whispered under her breath, you know, do it again, meaning break off the play just to, to check to make sure the girls were forcing the ball into the ball screen. Uh, and I, that was something that I'll always take away is, you know, she, she was detailed, uh, she was thorough. But at the same time, she also had kind of a, a sharp, clever wit that, that she would break out occasionally, which was was really fun and, and something I'll always remember fondly. Did you ever consider staying on the I, women's I side? I did. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, if you work for a place like Tennessee and work with a coach like uh, Coach Summit, you're going to have some opportunities on the women's side that, uh, frankly, I just didn't have on the men's side. But at the same time, I thought my ceiling might be a little bit more limited as a, as a male in that uh, industry. So I, I actually sent out uh, a handwritten letter to literally every Division I school in the country on the men's side. And I got about four or five responses. Uh, four, I think three or four people basically said, thanks. Uh, I don't have anything for you. Good luck. And then the one person who did respond actually gave me a phone call. And it was Joe Pasternak, the, the head coach at the University of New Orleans. And he said, I, I can't pay you anything, but I'd love to have you on our staff and, and I'll give you all the responsibility that you can ever dream of. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can't pay you anything and I can't promise you anything in the future. And that's really all I needed. I, I needed a foot in the door. I needed an opportunity. And uh, I kind of 
similar to taking uh, taking on Tennessee as a student, I, I looked at New Orleans as an opportunity to to grow as a person and, and obviously as a coach, as an aspiring coach. And I just kind of uh, went with a, a leap of faith. You know, you're on staff with guys like Adam Cohen, uh, you know, my guy, Nate Dixon. Talk about the experience there. And, and was it sort of a baptism by fire or, or were you pretty well prepared after your I was with the Lady completely Ball? inexperienced because I, I don't want to blow up my uh, experience with, with uh, Tennessee. I was a lowly practice player and, and an intern in the office stuffing mail and, and doing camp stuff. Uh, so I had absolutely no idea what I was doing as a Dilbo when I, when I first got to New Orleans. And, and I, uh, I actually didn't overlap with, with Nate Dixon. He had left the year before. Uh, and I only overlapped with Adam okay. Cohen for uh, about three months. I actually lived with him. Um, he, he you know, soon left to go to USC. Um, but it was, it was absolutely uh, drinking from a, a fire hose that first year. And, and part of that was the University of New Orleans had suffered a lot of financial uh, distress in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And the program was completely uh, failing as, as a athletic department, not just the basketball uh, team. And so they were, they were hemorrhaging money and, and students. Uh, and so you, you felt like you were trying to just stay afloat at all times. And uh, it was a kind of a bare bones operation. And, and that was the best thing in the world that could have ever happened for me because I had the opportunity to do you know, equipment, uh, video, scouting, recruiting, uh, doing team camp, doing individual camp. Uh, I was doing travel and logistics. I was doing game scheduling. I was, I was doing everything because they didn't have, you know, like maybe what Kentucky or, or Duke has an, an army of managers and, and staffers. It was really three assistants and me and, and that's it. And uh, like I said, you know, Coach Pasternak, he, he did an amazing job just trying to keep the entire athletic department afloat, not just uh, the men's basketball team. And while he was kind of uh, juggling so many things, it, it gave me an opportunity to have my hands in a lot of different uh, areas of the program. And so while I, I certainly had no experience in any of those things, it was kind of, uh, you know, you know, get with the program quickly or the, or the whole team's going to go down. So uh, I, I learned as fast as I could. And, and fortunately, I had some really good mentors uh, who, who had worked in the program previously who kind of given me some, some notes on how to operate. But, yeah, I, I would always say that that New Orleans experience was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me at, at that point in time. You know, you spend the next three years – uh, at Stanford working under Johnny Dawkins. Talk about how that opportunity presented itself and, and how was the adjustment to living on the Yeah, like, like every uh, buddy who, who gets uh, to the next spot in coaching, normally it comes from some sort of personal relationship. And my connection to Stanford was the head coach at, at UNO, Joe Pasternak, was a college manager at Indiana. And uh, the assistant coach and recruiting, recruiting coordinator at Stanford, Mike Schrage at the time, was also a manager at Indiana. So uh, Coach Pasternak called him and said, I got this guy who'd love to, to help you guys out. Do you have anything? And they had an intern position at Stanford, which I was for one year. And then that turned into a full-time uh, video coordinator spot. And 
I can't honestly say that the transition was uh, was really noteworthy from New Orleans to to Stanford because you're just spending so much time in the office that uh, you know I didn't really get to see too much of the Bay Area or San Francisco or, or anything like that. Um, but you know, certainly the, the the biggest thing was actually just the type of program moving from a place like New Orleans, which recruits an entirely different type of student than. Uh, than Stanford. And, and then obviously Stanford is one of, if not the best athletic departments in the country, was on incredibly solid uh, footing, unlike uh, University of New Orleans at, the, at that time. So it was really a culture shock in terms of the athletic department more so than anything. You know, I, I know that you met your, your current, uh, your wife during your well, time She also there. worked in the athletic me? department at Stanford. Uh, and I always, uh, my, my friends say you, you did well by, by, uh, by marrying up. And I certainly did that. So she's, she's a Stanford grad, uh, has a Stanford master's degree and a UCLA business school degree. And now she works uh, at Harvard business school. So she's the, definitely the brains of the operation. <laughs> you know, the team captures the 2012 NIT championship goes 26 and 11 and then makes the NIT again the next year. The season after you left, the team makes the NCAA Sweet 16. Clearly, you helped, uh, you know, the progression there. Yeah, it was, it was like great because them? when I came in, it was one of the best recruiting classes in the last probably 50 years at, at Stanford, and that was Dwight Powell, uh, still in the NBA, is starting center now for the, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Anthony Brown, who played with the Lakers, uh, Josh Hustis, who was a first-round draft pick uh, to Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, and then you had some other really good college players like Aaron Bright and, and Stefan Nostich. So it was, it was just an amazing freshman class. And to see them grow from year to year, uh, when they were sophomores, we won the NIT. Uh, and, and when they were sophomores, there was a guy by the name of Jason Randall, who was a freshman, that, that class behind him, who turned into the all-time leading scorer at Stanford that was really the nucleus of the team. And, and I got to work with them for three years. And so you could just see them getting better and better every single year. And uh, I knew when I left, I knew, you know, if, if those guys stayed healthy, it was going to be an incredible run. And, uh, uh, you know, luckily enough, uh, I was actually able to, to be at all those NCAA tournament games and actually be in the locker room after and, uh, you know, kind of enjoy that that run in the NCAA tournament. Uh, so it was really special to, to watch those guys develop. And a lot of them are still, you know, crushing it in, in professional basketball uh, as we speak. You know, in 2013, you moved back to the central time zone. Uh, you're on staff at Rice University as an assistant to the head coach. What made Rice a, a situation? Well, I wanted to be a, a full-time assistant and I wanted to be on the road recruiting. I wanted to, be on the court coaching. And, and that was an opportunity that I, I just couldn't pass up. I, I needed to get that experience. Uh, and coach Braun was, was, you know, incredibly uh, good to me in, in my one year there. And, uh, you know, coach Braun actually had coached Joe Pasternak or, or had uh, been coach Pasternak's boss at, at Cal. Uh, so that was kind of another one of those connections that you, you build along the way. Uh, and, and Rice was, was great. I, I made a ton of mistakes on the court. I made a ton of mistakes uh, off the court in recruiting, um, as anybody would as a first-time assistant coach. Uh, but those really 
you know, taught me valuable lessons moving forward on where I needed to get better. And I, I really, sometimes you, you think you're ready for that and then you get thrown to the fire and you realize, Oh, I, you know, I got to get better in this area or I got to get better in that area. And that certainly was, was uh, that type of experience for me at, at Rice. We uh, didn't have a, a great season, but it was an incredible learning opportunity for me to, to get my first, uh, you know, real coaching experience at the division one level. And you talk about it being a, a tough season and, and making, uh, you know, rookie mistakes. Who are some of those coaches that you call and lean on? Uh, That's a great summer? question. I, I would say first and foremost, there's a guy you mentioned earlier, uh, Adam Cohen, who's one of my best friends and was a, a groomsman in my wedding. Uh, he's a guy who's uh, always been somebody that I ask for basketball, recruiting, you know, life advice. Even he's certainly somebody that, that's close to me. Another guy I would say is Mike Schrage, who's done incredible things uh, at, at, you know, all of the stops that he, he has been at from Butler to Ohio State. Now he's the head coach at Elon. Uh, those two guys probably would, would be my closest mentors. Uh, but also, you know, Joe Pasternak was somebody who's been instrumental to me along the way. And, and all of those guys had similar backgrounds to me. They were, they were managers. They weren't guys who had extensive connections uh, to AAU programs or, uh, you know, were big time successful players. So I kind of followed their path in a lot of ways and, and they were able to give me uh, really great advice and they still do to this day. You know, Coach Braun's let go after the season, you know, seven and three, you guys had two different eight. Yeah, thanks for reminding me, David. What goes through your mind? <laughs> hey, that's what I'm here for, man. What goes through your mind? Yeah, when you know, when I go? took that job, you kind of see the direction of the program, and certainly you're not anticipating or, or banking on, you know, one thing or another. Uh, I took that job because it was an incredible opportunity for me to get some experience on the court. And, you know, I, I knew that if we didn't have a great season, you know, certainly there was uh, a chance that that would happen. Um, but it was still in hindsight, an incredible opportunity. And I'm so thankful to, to coach Braun for, for giving me that opportunity. When, when that did happen, the first thing I thought of was obviously, you know, what's next. And the, the two things that I did, uh, I went and I, I actually volunteered a little bit for, for Stanford just uh, during their, their postseason run. As, and then I, I thought I was actually going to go back to Stanford as video coordinator. Uh, but the other thing I did before I got hired back at, at Stanford was I went and I worked um, actually uh, uh, for the hoop scene uh, camp that Justin Young ran in Atlanta and, and was able to work with some Atlanta area players and evaluate and help coach in that event. And that would prove to be really uh, fruitful because I, I saw a couple young, really good student athletes there at that camp that I would eventually recruit when I was at Harvard. And before I really took the, the video position back at Stanford, uh, Tommy Amaker had an opportunity for me at Harvard. He was somebody that I had always tried to establish a relationship with because as you mentioned, at the beginning of this, this podcast, he's a, a WT Woodson alum, somebody that I had known about, looked up to, uh, and he had an opportunity as, a, as an assistant coach. And 
you know, if you're at Harvard, uh, somebody with, you know, experience at Rice and at Stanford uh, really makes a lot of sense because you're recruiting a lot of the same uh, types of student athletes. So when he had that opportunity for me, I, I jumped on it uh, right away at, at Harvard. And two of those, you know, players that I saw at uh, in the, the camp in Atlanta were Chris Lewis and, and Robert Baker, two guys who were top 100 recruits uh, in the 2016 class, two guys who actually just graduated this past year as our starting four and our starting five. And uh, Chris is the all-time leading shot blocker at Harvard, was a first-team All-Ivy player. Uh, Robert is, is going on to play professionally either in the G League or, or overseas. And uh, those guys helped us win two Ivy championships. So, uh, you know, to, to answer your question about what was next after Coach Braun got let go, it was right away you know, trying to keep involved and trying to stay kind of in the mix uh, while still looking for that next opportunity. And I'm, I'm really uh, lucky that, that I was able to do that and kind of get my eyes on, on uh, some really good players right away that, that would help me down the road. You know, TA hires you to be on staff at Harvard, like you said. Um, I know he was a college roommate of Johnny Dawkins. Was Red Jenkins helpful uh, with getting you two connected or was it really? Yeah, it was really through just through the guys you had worked Coach with. Dawkins and, and my experience with Coach Dawkins at, at Stanford. Uh, he was the guy who, who ultimately uh, helped me get on. And uh, I think Coach Amaker certainly had a soft spot uh, for a fellow uh, Cavalier. And, um, but, but at the time, it, it was not uh, something that Red Jenkins really helped with. I have since developed a great relationship with, with Coach Jenkins. He actually comes by to, uh, to the Harvard uh, clinic every single year. Coach Amaker flies him up and watches our team practice and uh, you know, helps our guys with their free throws. And uh, Red Jenkins is, is a legend in, in high school basketball and really of all of basketball. But uh, he was somebody that I – I didn't really have a great relationship with at the time, even though I grew up going to, to Red Jenkins basketball camp. Uh, but he's certainly uh, somebody that I looked up to and, and have a good relationship with now. You know, my grandma had taught with Red and they were friends and just kind of uh, side story. You know, my grandma ended up uh, developing Alzheimer's dementia. And so when I, I had read and obviously I knew you were at Tennessee when I was at High Point, um, and then saw that she had Alzheimer's. I was like, wow, that's awesome. And so, you know, I started reading her books and, and I was just Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, Center. terrible disease and uh, certainly has impacted a, a lot of people. And uh, Coach Summit, uh, you know, unfortunately passed a, a couple of years ago. But, uh, you know, her, her lessons and her impact on, on the game still reverberates around the country. So, you know, her, her, she's got a lasting legacy like I'm sure your grandmother does. And I can tell you've been in Harvard for a few years, man. Reverberate. Yeah, you know what they right they the, say: if you walk into words. the room and you're the smartest guy in the room, uh, you're in the wrong room because you know no one's gonna teach you anything, and, and you're not gonna get pushed. So I've always tried to work on uh, work at, at places where I can walk into the room and I can be the dumbest person in the room. That way, I, I always know uh, I'm gonna learn a thing or two. And certainly, when I walk into the film room and all these these Harvard guys are there, uh, I know I'm in pretty good shape. It's funny you mentioned that, man. When I, the, I think I met Coach Hamburger twice, and one of the times 
uh, when I was telling him, you know, I was looking to get into coaching, he had told me with a straight face, he goes, well, if you get accepted to Harvard, <laughs> I'll bring you on as my graduate assistant. <laughs> I just wanted to be like, I don't think you realize I wasn't, I wasn't in GT. Yeah. Or, well, uh, this is certainly a, a tough place to get into, but, um, it's pretty cool, actually. There's been a, a number of the Harvard players that we've had here that are now in coaching. Uh, Christian Webster was a really good player here. Uh, he's at Virginia Tech now as an assistant coach. And Matt Fraschillo was a, was a player here. Now he's the video coordinator at Villanova. Uh, so you can, you, know, you can still uh, turn out to be a, a coach even after you get that Harvard degree. I, they, they could be making millions of dollars on Wall Street or, or wherever. But uh, you know, if you love the game, you, you still love the game. No question. You know, what role did you have during your first season at Harvard and what roles and responsibilities, uh, you know, run your plate? My role here really hasn't changed much in the, in the seven years that I've been here. When, when I got hired, uh, coach Amaker was looking for somebody to, to kind of spearhead the recruiting. And, uh, you know, when I got here, Harvard had, was, uh, in the middle of a really, really good run of, of success of uh, four straight uh, NCAA tournament appearances. And uh, my first year was, was our fifth Ivy League championship in a row. Uh, so the team was in really good shape, but it was a really senior heavy team. And, you know, after my first year, really the entire rotation left. And I think Coach Amaker knew that. He knew that, you know, we, you know, had uh, had a couple of maybe uh, – uh, down years from a recruiting perspective, um, but we we had to get get back to where it was with with you know all conference players and having a really deep roster. So when I got hired, it was clear, you know, I want you to to spearhead our recruiting, be our recruiting coordinator, and that's been probably my biggest job here in my my seven years is uh, is making sure things are in the right position from a recruiting perspective. As I've gone along, I've become uh, the defensive coordinator and, and uh, working with our post players and, and adding some on-court responsibilities, but uh, never losing sight of, of you know, players uh, ultimately uh, are going to dictate the, the majority of your success. So that's always been uh, my, my first priority here. You know, I worked alongside Paul Stefano at Catholic and actually met, uh, you know, his son, Brian, who you worked with a few times. What oh, was it like uh, BD is a, a great Stephanie? guy. Uh, he's somebody who really helped me my first year at Harvard kind of figure things out. Harvard's such a unique school because it's in the Ivy League with no scholarships and working with an academic index and recruiting, you know, a different, a different type of player than maybe I was even used to at Rice. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a higher echelon student athlete. And so it, it was uh, a little bit of a transition, but somebody like Brian Stefano, who had been there for years and years, he, he was there uh, for, for Coach Amaker's um, first couple of years at, at Harvard. Uh, so he really had a, a great foundation of what Coach Amaker was looking for in recruiting and how he wanted to coach. So uh, it was really helpful that, uh, you know, Brian was able to, to kind of guide me in my first year and uh, Brian's actually uh, still a, a great friend. He's he's doing some coaching and high school teaching in the Albany area in New York. Uh, but we we also shared uh, a love for for DC basketball and 
DMV uh, hoops, and, and certainly his dad is a legend in that area. You know, during your first year, the Crimson uh, defeated Yale in a one-game playoff. You guys uh, represented the Ivy League in the NCAA tournament. Uh, and you guys gave the four-seeded Tar Heels everything they could handle. Uh, you know, two-point loss. Uh, but talk about some of the memorable. Yeah, there was there was a lot that first season. It, uh, that that year, as I mentioned, was uh, a lot of seniors. Four four of the five starters were seniors and had basically been the the core of that team for several years that had gone to the tournament. And so we we were the favorites in the Ivy League, uh, but you know everybody w- was gunning for us. We had the bullseye on our back, and I would say the most memorable moment of that season was was losing to Yale uh, and, and not being able to um, not being able to be the, the regular season champ on Friday night. And the way the, the Ivy league works, you play Friday uh, and then you play Saturday. So it's back to back. We lose to Yale on a Friday night, uh, which means they uh, had a one game advantage over us and they were going to play Dartmouth. We were going to host Brown and Dartmouth had been particularly strong that season. So it was kind of a foregone conclusion that, that Yale would beat Dartmouth. They would win the Ivy league and go on to the NCAA tournament. Uh, but, but uh, it was as would happen. We were actually a six o'clock game and, and Yale was a seven o'clock game. We, we beat Brown and we're doing our kind of post game senior reception. And we're in, in our lounge just right off the court. And you see Yale's up, you know, six or seven with two minutes to go. And, uh, we had it on the on the big screen just in case, you know, uh, just in case Yale dropped a game, uh, we would still be alive. Um, and, you know, everybody's kind of uh, in a down mood, even though it was a senior night and, and we had just beaten Brown. But slowly by slowly, you see Dartmouth kind of, OK, now they're down to five. Now it's down to three. Now, you know, now it's down to one. And uh, they they are actually they're down by uh, they're down by two, one or two with uh, like 1.5 seconds left. Uh, Dartmouth's got the ball baseline out and uh, they run this incredible play, uh, get, get one of their uh, starting post players, a layup and one at the buzzer. And our whole, our whole team is just like going crazy. Like I've never seen a celebration like that, even for winning your own game, but to see just somebody else lose, it was, it was remarkable. And, that meant that uh, as Dartmouth beat Yale, that meant that we would go on to the, the Yale uh, Harvard one game playoff that you mentioned. And uh, so to be able to, to have that experience that would allow us to, to beat Yale uh, in the palestra and, and move forward to the NCAA tournament was uh, that was something I'll never, uh, I'll never forget. You know, in 2016, 2017, the season ended in the uh, inaugural Ivy League tournament. What were your Ooh, thoughts? Uh, on those decisions, those decisions obviously are way, way, way above my head. I always liked the format where, you know, you played a true round robin and that's what crowned your champ. Uh, but the the powers that be moved on to a, a tournament and it's been, you know, incredibly successful. Playing at the Palestra the first couple of years was, was a lot of fun. Uh, fortunately, uh, We've been in the Ivy League tournament each of the years, but uh, unfortunately, we've uh, had some some tough luck. The, the first year we 
had to, to, or excuse me, the second year of the tournament in the championship, we had to play uh, against Penn at Penn, even though we were the one seed. And, and then uh, last uh, season, we had to play at Yale, uh, even though we were the one seed uh, and, and lost to Yale. So we've had some, some tough breaks. And then obviously this past year, it was supposed to be at Harvard. We had beaten Yale twice in the regular season. And uh, so we felt like we had a really good opportunity, especially at home to make it to the NCAA tournament and then they canceled the tournament. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been kind of a, a tough sledding for us in terms of the Ivy league tournament. Uh, but it's, it's certainly a great thing for the student athletes to experience that type of March madness. And uh, it's, it's been well received by the fans. So it, it's overall, I think it's a good thing. We just got to turn it around and, and play better in the tournament, I guess. The program wins its uh, sixth Ivy League championship in 2017-2018. Uh, you guys earned your second NIT berth in program history. You know, guys like Seth Towns, uh, you know, Ivy League Player of the Year. Uh, you know, talk about the entire Ivy League really elevating. And, and what was it I like think to be uh, Coach Amaker really deserves an incredible amount of success, uh, of that credit for how the ele- the elevation of the talent in the Ivy league. And ever since he's been here, the, the bar for recruiting has been raised and coach James Jones at Yale has done a great job improving the talent base there. And uh, Steve Donahue at, at Cornell before now at Penn has done a really good job. And uh, I think there's really good coaching in the league that, that has established uh, some really good teams and, and programs over the last, you know, obviously 60, 70 years, but really in the last eight or nine years has really made a huge jump. If you look at, you know, the, the Ken Palm rankings of all the, the leagues, the Ivy League has jumped up, you know, seven, eight, nine spots just in the last handful of years. And you, you look at recruiting, we're now starting to get on a regular basis, guys who had high major offers, guys who, you know, are, are ranked, you know, top 100, top 150 players. And that's, uh, it's really exciting to see that, Guys are really valuing uh, the high academic experience and, and an Ivy League opportunity. And uh, that's, you know, something that, you know, continues to push us as the rest of the league continues to get better. That means we got to get better. And the Ivy League uh, basketball scene has, has kind of uh, exploded in the last 10 years in, in terms of talent. Uh, and that's, that's my, my mission now is to, to kind of keep moving the needle up. You know, how involved has got, have guys like Jeremy Lin been uh, during your time at Harvard, whether it's coming back in the offseason to work out or, you know, guys like Steve Ballmer, who, you know, former Harvard well, student manager. Well, Jeremy what, has been uh, so active in his playing career that, that it's been tough. You know, if you're playing in the NBA, other than when he plays the Celtics, it's really hard to, to come by during the season. And then, uh, you know, obviously playing overseas in, in China this past year, I think he will be much more active once his career ends, but he did uh, donate a, a significant amount of money to our gym renovation a few years ago. And, and that was a, a really uh, amazing thing to see him give back to, to the school that, that kind of uh, helped give him that platform. Uh, and then in terms of Steve Ballmer, there's some rules that, that actually prevent him from having a ton of direct contact because he's an NBA owner and, and having some of those, uh, regulations in place, but I know he is certainly 
uh, an avid supporter and, and we, we know that he's watching, but uh, haven't had a ton of direct contact just due to those, um, those rules that, that prevent NBA uh, personnel from, from talking to certain college players. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if he, uh, if he had many Harvard, players, uh, not, not uh, to date. He's actually had uh, Harvard, a couple of Harvard assistants in the staff and in the front office. So he's, he's definitely wired in and, and watching. Um, but you know, there, as I said, there are some things that, that prevent him from being, uh, incredibly, uh, you know, direct with his, his relationship with the Harvard basketball program. No, I completely understand that. Um, you know, you guys go on to win your, the Ivy League championship for the second consecutive season, uh, seventh of the last uh, nine seasons. And, and you guys had guys like Bryce Aiken, Noah Kirkwood, uh, having all-league caliber seasons. Then you guys go on to knock off Georgetown in your second consecutive NIT appearance. What does the offseason – like what's the off season like? Cause obviously there's a lot of hype about coach Amaker being courted by power conference schools. Yeah. You you coach Amaker has been you know, so internal. successful here at, at Harvard and uh, the places that he's been before, uh, obviously as a player and then a, a coach at Duke and sweet 16 at, at Seton hall. So he's going to have opportunities and uh, that's, that's, those are, are great things when you're being successful, you know, people are going to come after you, but he's found a home here. This is his 14th year. And, he and his, his wife seem to love it here and are really entrenched in the school, not just as a, as a coach, but he's really involved with Harvard Business School, the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, he's had great relationships with the presidents in terms of some on-campus uh, roles. So he's not just a coach here, and, and I think he really embraces that and, and loves that aspect of his job at, at Harvard. So I, I can't see him uh, moving on anytime soon, but you know, those are – those are certainly things that, that come up in recruiting, but those are, those are good things. Those are things that only come after having success. You know, we'd much rather be facing that type of question than, you know, are, are you going to get let go or, or that kind of thing? Uh, so it's, it's definitely something that, that we uh, occasionally have to address, but I think Coach Amaker's track record and, and just his tenure here suggests that he's, he's pretty firm and pretty happy where he's at. You know, last season you guys hit the 20-win plateau for the first time, and you know since 2014-2015, you go 21 and eight. You guys had wins over Power Five conference teams like Texas A&M and California. Yeah, How we, as I mentioned earlier, we felt really good. We had beaten uh, the the number one seed last year was actually Yale. We had beaten them twice in the regular season, and and pretty convincingly on the, uh, the last weekend of the year at home. So we felt really confident that, that we had what it took. And we had a bunch of seniors who had been, you know, through the, through the war, so to speak, in the Ivy League. They had lost a couple of different Ivy League title games, and they were rearing to go. They, they wanted that opportunity, and so it was quite the letdown, as you can imagine. Um, but we, we've never really uh, shied away from playing those big games, as you mentioned, whether that was – at Cal or, you know, beat San Francisco on, on the road last year in the same road trip, uh, playing Texas A&M in Orlando, beating them, and then giving Maryland all they could handle the next day. You know, we've, we've wanted to schedule as tough as we can because those are the types of games that our, our players want. 
you know, we're, we're recruiting against those type of teams. And in order to continue to attract those guys, we need to have a schedule that's, that's nationally relevant. And so that's, that's why we play at Kentucky and at Kansas. And uh, that's why we go and play at North Carolina. We, we don't shy away from playing anybody. And uh, those are also the games that I think you, you learn the most about your team and, and you grow uh, when, when you win by 40, you know, uh, hopefully that, that happens, not that that happens too often, but if you do, you know, you don't really learn a whole heck of a lot about your team, but when you're getting challenged and you're playing, you know, teams with four or five pros on it, that's where you really grow and, and really learn a, a lot about yourself. Yeah. If memory serves me correct, I think you were a Carolina fan growing up. What's been the most surreal? Yeah, that's, that's a really good memory. My, uh, my dad went to North Carolina so I, I grew up a, a North Carolina fan and actually went, went to Carolina basketball school uh, when I was a, a youngster and had pictures with, with me and Dean Smith and Bill Guthridge and Matt Doherty, those types. Uh, so playing at the Dean Dome a few years ago and my dad was, you know, sitting uh, right behind our bench. That was, that was awesome because I, I know how special that was for him. Uh, obviously playing against North Carolina in the NCAA tournament was, was also pretty cool growing up as a, as a Carolina fan. Uh, but I would say that my favorite experience uh, as a coach in terms of a, another school's uh, home gym is actually Fog Allen in Kansas. That is an amazing, amazing place. Uh, if you ever have a chance to go, even as a, as a fan or coach, highly recommend it because the, the tradition, the fans, obviously Kansas is, is always loaded and, and a heck of a team. That was that was an awesome awesome uh, venue. We we played there four or five years ago, and it was actually it was a close game. It was a three point game with a minute left, and and they hung on to beat us. Uh, but that's probably my favorite venue that I've ever uh, had a chance to to coach at. You know, it, it, there was a poll uh, in July, and the Ivy League coaches named you one of the top assistant coaches in the league. How did it feel? Oh, it's, to be it's obviously uh, an honor, and, and uh, I think uh, whatever accolades I've gotten uh, should be shared, obviously amongst our other assistants too. I'm not the only guy who recruits here. I'm not the only guy who, who's coaching, and and Coach Amaker deserves the the most su- success. Obviously, this is certainly his program, and and uh, we we uh, take his direction. So uh, when you're working at a, a program that wins, and when you're working at a program that that gets titles and uh, is getting big recruits, then certainly those types of, of um, impressions are going to be made on, on others. But uh, we're, we're a staff that really does a lot of, um, you know, sharing in terms of some of the responsibilities. So uh, I, I think, you know, w- when I saw that, it was really a win for our entire staff, not just for me. What are your ultimate coaching aspirations? What, what would the right opportunity look like? For you That's to, a, a great uh, question. I, my, my wife and I are really happy Harvard. here. I've been here, as I said, seven years, and this is an amazing, amazing place. And she really likes working at, at Harvard Business School. And I'm working for one of the best people, not just coaches, but one of the best people in the business and, and Tommy Amaker. So it's, it's a special place. And, you know, one, one of the things that, that people have told me is don't mess with happy. And, and we're happy. So uh, it would certainly have to be a, a special, special type of uh, place to, to move on from, from Harvard. But uh, you never know. And 
I certainly don't have a, a crystal ball, but we're, we're really excited to be here and, and hopefully we get back to playing sooner rather than later. So we can uh, continue to do some of those fun things we've talked about. You know, come to the segment I call <laughs> start bench cut, you know, the, oh, Nike the wolf, all day. I won't even bother. Nike Adidas Under Armour. I'm going, I'm going, uh, I'm going start Nike. I'm going, I'm going bench Adidas and cut Under Armour. Okay. Uh, this is probably going to be the toughest one you get, Coach. Bryce Oh, Duncan, oh man, I love all three of those guys. I would, say, uh, I would say Seth Towns right now is a, is a little bit of a knee injury. Uh, Bryce Aiken's got an ankle injury. So those two guys are going to be benched only because they're dressed in suits. I don't know how, how well they can guard on the defensive end uh, wearing a suit. And so I'm going to start Rio Haskett. <laughs> And, I, and I'm not cutting any of them. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay. That's fair. I respect that. Uh, glory days. Oof. Now you're talking Buffalo some, some Fairfax specialties Grill. there. I'm going to go start, uh, start B-dubs. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to bench Brian's grill. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going to cut glory days. So sorry. Uh, Sorry to all those Fairfax guys that love glory days. <laughs> uh, he got game. Oof. White man. I'm going to start jump. blue chips blue because chips. Nick Nolte is, is just hilarious in that movie. I'm going to, I'm going to bench. He got game. Uh, and then I'm going to cut white man can't jump. And as much as I like that movie, the basketball scenes are just outrageous. If you watch, if you watch those guys playing, it's like they're, they're playing on an eight foot goal or something. Last one, Coach. Uh, hoop Dirt. Well, I'm definitely going to cut the NCAA, NCAA transfer, transfer portal, portal. because, uh, you know, the, the Ivy League's not taking too many transfers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. the, and I don't think we've ever had a, a transfer since transfer in, certainly, since I've been at Harvard. So that, they're getting cut for sure. Uh, and then I think, uh, I think I'm going to bench Hoop Dirt. That's, uh, you know, a great platform for information, and, and they do a really good job. Uh, there, but uh, verbal commits, while not being 100%, you know, accurate all the time, certainly uh, relevant for for my job as a recruiter and, and, and helpful from time to time. So I'll start verbal yeah. commits. Uh, wow, that's a so that's a great question. Great question. I would go with I would go with Adam Cohen, Stanford assistant coach. I would go with uh, I would go with Justin Simon, an assistant coach at Yale, who does a, a really good job at at Yale. Uh, and then I would go, I would go Mike Roberts, an assistant coach at Indiana, somebody uh, who, who's doing a great job at Indiana, but also played there and has been all over the country and uh, been been a really good assistant coach at a lot of different places. So those three guys have interesting backgrounds as as players, managers, and, and coached at uh, some really good schools. Coach, what advice do you have for coaches trying to move focus up the ranks? Focus on the work. Or, or focus on your job. I think coaching. if you do your job as well as you can, uh, people are going to notice. And, and, you know, as I mentioned throughout our conversation here, you know, the, the people you work for are, are ultimately going to be your, your best ambassadors. And so if you can do a, a great job and, and help them, uh, they're going to more often than not help you in return. So that's certainly always been my focus 
is just doing my job to the best of my ability and kind of let the, the chips fall where they may after that. I think uh, a lot of people uh, spend uh, maybe a little bit too much time in the networking area and, and less on uh, trying to do their job to the best of their ability. So uh, maybe sounds cliche, but I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Coach, if listeners want to get in touch with uh, you, my, my uh, Twitter is at Brian Eskinson. That's media, uh, what have you. What's the best uh, way? pretty easy. If you want to follow some Harvard basketball content uh, and my, my emails on the, the website, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty approachable. So you can, you can certainly get uh, my information from, uh, from David uh, or can find my information on the Harvard website. Coach, I appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, it was fun kind of going through memory lane and, uh, you know, hearing some of your journey that I wasn't uh, aware of. So yeah, I wish you guys nothing but I appreciate success. it, David. Thanks and for having continue me. Continue to crush it up there uh, with the Crimson. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.